Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So we'll make a, a start now. Thank you very much, everyone. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, today is the last uh, session in the series of talks, Introduction to the Western Tradition. And I'll just briefly recap what we've been through, and then I'll introduce uh, my, my friend, uh, Sheikh uh, Danish, in a second. And we'll uh, give you uh, some sense of what we're going to be talking about today, inshallah. So um, over the past, was it four or five days, we uh, began with looking at and uh, asking what is the Western tradition and why should we care about it? Um, we looked initially at Hellenism, the spread of Greek philosophy and the thought and culture with Alexander the Great. We looked at Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, the great uh, philosophers. Briefly touched on Judaism, the Jewish Bible, the historical Jesus and the Gospels and the early church up to the Emperor Constantine in the fourth century. And then we fast-tracked to the Renaissance and the Reformation and the pioneering uh, work uh, by Erasmus in the New Testament and the famous Trinity verse, which of course was not part of the original Bible, uh, he discovered. Uh, and we looked at uh, Martin Luther and Calvin. And then uh, in our penultimate session, we looked at the Enlightenment, the so-called Age of Reason. Um, we briefly looked at Kant, the philosophy of Kant, the idea of the categorical imperative. We looked at uh, Sir Isaac Newton, the great Enlightenment scientist and the mechanistic universe that he uncovered. Uh, touched briefly on the French Revolution and that seminal event and how that's influenced world history. We mentioned Karl Marx, uh, Nietzsche, uh, the uh, phenomena of Western colonialism, civilizing the natives in inverted commas, uh, especially in France, and the dethroning of the Bible in the, in the light of archeological, historical, textual research. And then we also looked uh, at the triumph of liberal democracy after the Second World War, particularly with the, the American uh, hegemony, the superpower, global superpower status of the USA, and the secularization of the churches. Um, we looked at that iconic Time magazine cover, Is God Dead in the 1960s? Um, and in my view, how Islam is the only world religion that has not succumbed to secular liberalism. So today, inshallah, we'll be looking at what are the challenges facing Muslims in today's world from the Western tradition. Because I hope, as we've very briefly outlined, there is a context to what's happening with Islam and LGBTQ, which is the theme of this um, discussion. Didn't come out of anywhere, nowhere. There, there are antecedents going back to the 1960s and the sexual revolution, going back even to the French Revolution and the Renaissance, the idea of the individual, uh, the idea of moral autonomy and so on. There are many kind of antecedent philosophical and ideological roots to the contemporary phenomena we're seeing today. So, uh, as I mentioned, I'm uh, thrilled to be joined today uh, by uh, Sheikh uh, Danish. Most welcome, sir. Thank you for having me. Good, good to see you. Okay. Um, for those who don't know, I'll just briefly mention that Danish is the founder of In Sheikh's Clothing. 
Uh, he's uh, got 12 years experience working with victims of spiritual abuse in the Muslim world. Uh, he began a formal study of the Islamic sciences some years ago, uh, 2006. Uh, he graduated in 2010 from UC Berkeley in California and has dedicated himself to full-time traditional Islamic studies. His areas of study expertise include fiqh, aqidah, mantik, which I think is logic, isn't it? Um, and hadith, tasawwuf, and tafsir. And he's also very experienced in community work, Muslim leadership training, and Muslim youth development. And in 2019, he finished his master's degree focusing on spiritual abuse. And inshallah, one day we'll have a, a separate conversation about the extremely important subject that he specializes in. So today's subject is, as I say, Islam and, in inverted commas, LGBTQ. It's a huge subject and we can only touch on a few aspects of it now, inshallah. But I just wanted to reflect briefly by way of introduction. In the 1980s and the 1990s in Europe, Britain and so on, there was a beginning of a, uh, in the wake of the sexual revolution in the 1960s, women's rights, civil rights and so on. As a part of that, as a minor theme in that cultural revolution, we saw the beginnings of the so-called gay rights movement. And this focused at that time on basic civil rights for people. So you shouldn't victimize someone because they have same-sex attraction. Just because they're gay, you shouldn't do ra random acts of violence against them. You shouldn't discriminate them in the, in the workplace. You should treat people with respect and tolerance. Tolerance was the name of the game. Okay, treating people with uh, dignity. Um, so that was kind of then in the 80s and 90s. And if we kind of fast forward now, uh, I think we're living in a different world. We've gone beyond that now to a world where a whole range of alternative sexualities, sexual moralities, different lifestyles, not only exist and are, inverted commas, celebrated in the West, but as far as I can see, we are, it is compulsory now to affirm, celebrate uh, this, uh, th these sexualities, these alternative lifestyles. And if you don't affirm them and celebrate them in very vocal ways, then you're called lots of bad names like bigot or um, homophobe or even worse. And you can uh, suffer social ostracism, you can lose your job, you can even be prosecuted. Um, there's a recent example in England mentioned in the Daily Mail, this right-wing tabloid newspaper online, um, of a man, this is like four or five days ago now, in England, uh, I think it was a retired uh, army guy, and he was actually arrested, two police went to his home, because he had tweeted a pride flag that he had cleverly configured to look like a swastika. And he had tweeted this, and the police came to his house, arrested him, and his offence, interestingly, was that his tweet had caused anxiety. I kid you not. He was arrested for causing anxiety, for tweeting a, uh, some, rainbow, um, some pride flags that were, as I say, shaped like a swastika. Because he was making the point, presumably, that there's now a new spirit of intolerance in the world, and it kind of resembled a kind of a quasi-fascist kind of mentality. And he was actually prosecuted for this, for causing anxiety. This is absolutely true, so I checked it, it's a real story. This is the new world we're living in. Um, and uh, Sheikh Dalish is from California, United States. 
I'm not saying everything. Did, did it start in California, this? <laughs> but well, what, what are your thoughts? Do, do, do you think there is this ch complete change paradigm shift now in our culture, more than just respect and tolerance for difference, but a compulsory approval of a whole new range of lifestyle? Absolutely, and I think the explicit stuff is clear. But even at the subtle level, where at companies, at hospitals, at hospitals perhaps primarily, people are asked to wear badges with preferred pronouns on there. So there's a forced paradigm where what you are is no longer just assumed that your pronoun matches as yes. it should be. Yes. You have to actually state it. And when you even have to explicitly state it, you're playing into that paradigm. Right. Gosh. So the, the question of identity now is central, isn't it? Before it was about civil rights, not abusing people, shall we say, treating people perhaps fairly. But now uh, the identity, uh, identity markers are central to who we are as a species now. So, you know, it's not that I, I'm, I'm uh, an office worker or a mother or father. I am, uh, I am whatever I am in the LGBTQ alphabet. Right, absolutely. And they'll, again, I think the pronoun part is very significant. Mm because the reason is that if you refuse to state them, it's seen as taking a stance against an entire movement that's sweeping the nation or being forced upon the nation, really, mm. right? So whether or not someone states pronouns, I think it signifies how invested they are in, in this whole movement and where they stand in it. And to not do so is seen as being against LGBT, something as simple as that. Gosh. So that triggers uh, a negative response. Uh, what, what strikes me is that I, I, I'm, I'm obviously not a scientist or anything, but it strikes me that many scientists say that our, our gender, our, our, our sex, is rooted in our biology. So we have male and female chromosomes, for example. But it seems that in this movement, we are encouraged just to, as, as an act of mental creation to state what we are. So I, as Paul, I happen to be biologically male, obviously, but I could just say, if I felt like it, well, actually, I'm a woman, and that is my identity, and you must call me she. Exactly. I mean, is this the case? Is this really what's happening now? That's actually what's happening. <laughs> well, I mean. And it's seen as bigoted to not do so, and whatever a person believes they are, or says they are, or claims to be, it has to be affirmed by everybody else. And to challenge that, to disagree, even on religious grounds, is seen as bigoted and hateful. And I think that's the big cultural lie, to not agree with something is to hate it. And mm. it's not something, there's a privileged position that the LGBT movement has, where disagreeing with them is particularly hateful. See, if someone disagrees with Islam, we would never call that person hateful. If someone disagrees with Christianity, which by default a Muslim does, we wouldn't call that Muslim hateful. Yeah. But for LGBT, there seems to be this really privileged position. While the claim is the claim is that everybody's a minority, there should be mutual respect, but there is a privileged positioning of that group within what they within the spectrum they claim to fit in of other minorities. So there's a great irony here because the, the, the people are claiming victim status, we're oppressed, we're a minority, and yet you're saying they're actually very privileged. And how do we know this? Because of the power they clearly exert on uh, others who don't agree with their agenda. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. We can test this claim right. to being, uh, I'm just a victim, by saying, well, who wields the power here? What's the power dynamics? And the irony is the victims are actually the, the oppressors in some ways. I mean. I mean, you know this better than I do, but haven't you seen rainbow flags hanging from embassies? Yeah. US embassies in other countries? I was actually in Berlin a couple of weeks ago, and um, it, co coincidentally, I hadn't realized until my host told me that uh, it was actually a couple of days after I arrived, it was the Berlin Gay Pride. 
I thought, oh no, you know. <laughs> and, um, and I actually walked past the, near the Brandenburg Gate, is the British Embassy. In fact, there's the American Embassy, which is very privileged there, right by the Brandenburg Gate, the French Embassy, and the British Embassy. So I walked past, oh, let's go see the British Embassy, this big, imposing building. Now, in my, in my idea, the British Embassy represents Britain, <laughs> the United Kingdom. And the only identifying marker outside the British Embassy was the LGBT flag, the pride flag. And that was it. This is now Britain. <laughs> and I, was, I took a photograph and tweeted it. I thought, how extraordinary, you know? I mean, since when did this become who we are as a nation, uh, Britain? And, and this ditto, by the way, for France, Germany, the United States. And of course, the US tweets uh, every June to the Muslim nations in the world, quite provocatively ordering them, telling them to accept this agenda. Uh, Kuwait, I've seen a, a tweet to Kuwait online which is basically ordering Kuwait or telling Kuwait to accept this agenda. Extraordinary demonstration of kind of neo-colonial influence and power. Um, and I also just want to add on the yeah. pronoun point. See, I think some Muslims kind of fall for this trick that it's, what's the big deal of just affirming a pronoun, of just mm. calling someone by what they want to be called. Mm. But this has uh, deeper implications. So speaking of power of this lobby, the, there was an all-star game, a basketball NBA all-star game that was canceled in Charlotte several years back because they didn't let uh, people go to the bathroom that they identified with, the gender they identified with. Mm -hmm. So you might think it's very benign. A man wants to be called he, uh, she, her, just call him by she and her. It's very benign, what's the big deal? As Muslims we should be nice. Right. But this has deeper implications that if, she, if he calls himself a woman, you have a, you have a man convicted of rape, raping a woman, then he says he is a woman and he goes to a woman's prison mm. and rapes in there. Mm. You have male inmates identifying as women, impregnating women in prisons too. This happened in Colorado. This happened in the UK as a notorious case oh. uh, several weeks ago. Who, uh, uh, a, how can I put this? You know, in traditional language, a guy who said he was a woman went to, was convicted and went to a woman's prison, a prison where he committed further offenses against women. Um, it, it's quite, this happened. So it's beyond pronoun. I want to say that it might seem very benign, just a name tag, respect somebody. And this is the type of empathy that's manipulated. And Muslims, you know, we want to be nice. Most people, I think, want to be nice. And there's much, there's a, that's step one. Step two has real consequences, like the bathroom example that I was giving and in, in the prisons and other places. So even the masajid, I mean, I, like, are we going to let men into the women's space because they call themselves that in, in the women's areas of the masjid, in, in bathrooms, and you know, this stuff is ignored as if it's not an invasion of privacy. Mm -hmm. In your experience of working with youth in, in the community, how uh, impactful are these ideologies and ideas on youth? Uh, yeah, I think, so I would answer that by saying, I, I think a lot of some Muslim leadership did renege on their responsibilities of standing well, up to this movement. We won't mention names, of course. Right, no, but like, so let's talk about the good examples, people yeah. I look up to and really that I'm drawing from in this talk. Uh, we have Sad Mubin Vaid, yes. Dr. Uh, Carl uh, Al-Tubki, yeah. who uh, you did, the, you did, you did uh, webinars with both of them, actually. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah I, I do recognize a plug here for blogging theology, but uh, Professor uh, Al-Tubki uh, did a four-hour video uh, on blogging theology entitled Islam and LGBT. 
BETQ in inverted commas, um, which has gone viral. It's had over 100,000 views in the last couple of months. And it broke all the rules. I mean, it was four hours long, not 20 minutes. It was uh, quite academic. And, you know, he is an academic, a professor going on about this. And, but it was absolutely world-class, brilliant material. And I do uh, commend it. It's been translated into other languages. If you really want to um, look at the background to these whole issues, the sexual revolution, um, the, the nature of morality and ethics in Islam, uh, what's permitted and what's prohibited, and the Islamic position on all of these issues from a very uh, sensible, informed, incisive, clear perspective with tons and tons of uh, slides which are quite helpful, then I really recommend that. I think it's pretty unique, that video. So, yeah, so those, are th yeah. those are definitely some great examples and people I draw from. You'll hear like me probably mentioning things I've learned from them. Mm. Um, but, but what I was mentioning is when a courageous stance was not taken early on, yeah. it impacts the generations to come. So the generation that does compromise, they'll still look like vestiges of the past. You won't be able to see, it won't be as uh, noticeable in them how much they've changed. But the generation that comes after them, that inherits that change, that compromise, it, the, they won't recognize basics of Islam and their practice will be so uh, different than what a Muslim is actually supposed to be. And then, just like we say, uh, courage is contagious, so is cowardice. And cowardice, it creates new norms to where a basic stance is affirming the basics of our religion becomes seen as courageous. So now we have Muslims with a struggle they should never have. Is it really wrong to uh, engage in same-sex acts? You know, is it really wrong to, to, for a man to marry a man or a woman to marry a woman? Whereas, of course, this is something that there was no debate about a few years ago. And you, I think, mentioned yourself that what was labeled moderate, the ground has changed so much, you were mentioning yesterday. Yes. Yeah, it is strange. I was kind of noting that, you know, if you have some moderately traditional views, say, five years ago, and, and you just continue to hold those views, because the, the, the ground is shifting politically to the left all the time, you'll find yourself on the far right, in inverted commas, without actually having changed your views at all. It's not as if you become far right, but you, you get labelled because the, the whole political paradigm uh, has shifted so far to the left. If you just stand still, you'll find yourself on the right. And that's quite unfair, really. It shows how the thing is rigged to, um, in a certain way. It's always further to the left, to the left, to the left. It's never any other way, um, unfortunately. And if we accommodate these changes and try to Islamicize them or just are quiet about major changes affecting our religion, we can't be surprised when people get confused. Mm. But, you, but you mentioned, and I think rightly, recently, again without mentioning names, some very prominent American um, Muslim leaders are now speaking with great clarity on this issue, I think, uh, and with great certainty. So where there was perhaps some doubt about what Islam teaches and perhaps a, a tendency to hedge and not be clear, now I think that, do you sense there's a sea change or is that just? I think so. I mean, to be very honest with you, you tell me what you think. But I, I, think, I think the Christians, conservative Christians, have actually made it more acceptable for the Muslims. And Muslims are kind of following their lead. Because now, finally, there's some pushback to the strong cancel culture about someone speaking against LGBT, um, the author of Harry Potter. Um, oh, yes. She was... Uh, What's her name? What's Harry Potter, the author of Harry J.K. Rowling. Rowling, thank yeah, you. Yeah, she was, I think, pretty significant in terms of showing how absurd some of this stuff is and not apologizing to the mob and many others who haven't. And Muslims are 
are coming after some of the Christians and other public figures have made it a little bit safer. So unfortunately, Muslims, I don't think they're leading the way, but now we are hearing more Muslim voices uh, speaking out against it now that it's not as scary. But you do get, again, not mentioning names, certain uh, leading Muslim politicians in the state, certain uh, in Congress. Uh, there's a particular uh, lady who wears a hijab. I forget, I forget her name. I'm not going to try and remember her name. Um, who's very, she's not just, um, she, she is very, very positively uh, pro this agenda. And uh, what is going on there? Are, are these people strategically using political alliances to help benefit ultimately the Muslim community and so kind of strategically, okay, I'll go along with this. Or are these really ideological, are the Ishi and others like her convinced of this agenda? Well, you probably have a much better analysis of this. Uh, well, no, I, I, I need to be humble. No, no, I mean, you're American. As you have some insight that I don't have. <laughs> no, I think all of the Muslim politicians, uh, whether it's Keith Ellison, Ilhan Omar, Rashid Tlaib, all of them, there, there may be more. Um, those three I'm aware of did celebrate actively yes. uh, in pride parades. Yes, exactly. I think there are videos of at least a few of them even dancing at pride parades. Right. So I think Muslims were a little swept up in just supporting any Muslim candidate. And when people said we should support Muslim politicians, I always point, well, you know, there are plenty of Muslim rulers in the Muslim world that don't represent us well. This is true. Many dictators, is true. You know, <laughs> yeah, maybe we shouldn't be too picky. I, suppose, yeah, I, don't, I don't particularly mm. get excited if there's a Muslim running for office. I mean, what are the values? Mm. Are, are they mm. Muslim because they say they're Muslim? Should Muslim support because they're Muslim? Well, is it, are, are, are these people primarily politicians first who happen to be Muslim? Right. Or are they Muslim politicians representing Islam, the Muslim community? I'm not entirely clear sometimes. I think you are quick on. Well, you know, what, what's going on here? You know, I appreciate uh, your humility, but you probably No, I'm not being humble. <laughs> I don't know. You know a, um, so, yeah, it's same in Britain. Uh, most of our... Um, Muslim Isn't a politician Muslim MPs. always a politician first? Well, I don't, yeah, I mean, you think, um, uh, yeah, but uh, a lot of our, most of our Muslim MPs uh, voted for gay marriage, interestingly. I think one abstained, he was a conservative MP in, in Britain, um, who didn't actually vote for it and he just abstained. But the rest voted for it, which is extraordinary, um, you know, what, what's, what's going on there. And I would imagine they're doing it for strategic reasons, political reasons, rather than because they privately believe it's fine. I mean, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt in that sense. I mean, if someone believes privately it's not okay, then you wouldn't see them that actively celebrating it. I mean, there's not much of a reason to believe there's a private disagreement when someone's expressing it. Mm. I think what you say can stand if there's, if there's just silence, you know, but if there's a public support, they forfeited any husnadhan, like any reason for us to assume there's even a private dislike for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've capitulated to a level where there's no reason to assume that private is any different. And this is a very controversial question. You may not want to go into it, or it may not be a right context, but people like that, some of those political individuals who identify as Muslim and very uh, militantly support the LGBTQ, have they taken themselves out of the fold of Islam, do you think? I mean, that's... We can ask uh, Sheikh Hamza Karim. Okay, well, <laughs> and I know this is actually quite a nuanced question. Uh, it's not, you know, there could be many factors involved. Yeah. So but we should we definitely say they don't, represent us, they don't represent us as Muslims. don't represent. They don't represent us as Muslims, that's for sure. Um, and again, in the Muslim world, I don't think anyone looks to politicians to, to, for Islamic representation. I, like, genuinely, genuinely, I was just confused why it even mattered for Muslims uh, that there's a Muslim politician, whether by name or actual, mm. like, 
why does that give us any sense of izza, any sense of honor and dignity? It's like the television and movie shows as well. It's like you have some Muslim pop singer. Since when are we proud of that? Since when is that a religious position for us to look up to? That's why for me, if a Muslim like musician does something, I don't really care. You know, like it's not something. These are not people we look up to. We shouldn't make history uh, heroes out of them. And we shouldn't allot them any sort of symbolic Islamic status because they're Muslim and we finally have somebody. Mm -hmm. Can I just open this up a bit uh, to, to people? Because I, I feel that although I actually you make a very good point, I think in the real world, what happens on TikTok or social media or YouTube or Instagram does matter at some level. And so if you have a, a Muslim singer or whatever entertainer who's, who's then representing certain LGBTQ agendas, Although, theoretically, we understand that that so what? That could be harmful to Muslims. But I'm it, saying it has I, I meant more like be proud that right. we have a Muslim musician. Mm, that's, mm. that's more of what I meant, or we're finally right. being represented. Of course, they can cause a, a lot of harm. Right. And these politicians probably have. Yeah. Sorry, brother, you... Yeah, so you mentioned that if there's a, a Muslim singer, they did something, and we don't be proud of it. What about the opposite? If there's a, a Muslim uh, businessman, and he invests in a university or something and then we, we become proud of it so now we own him he's Muslim look what the Muslims are doing well the music industry is not an industry to be proud of that's that was mainly my point I named an industry that's like it's a bottle it's it's not a good industry to begin with right business is neutral yeah. you know it, it could be very positive education same thing a Muslim doctor same thing a Muslim office worker same thing but there are certain industries where that's not where we look to for guidance. Hollywood, music, and like models, you know, that's not something we should even care for. Yeah, that, that's what, more of what I was saying. I don't mean any Muslim professional. There's certain industries that are just not acceptable. So as long as the industry is allowed, then we can hold on to them. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I think there's a statement by one of the companions, I don't remember his name right now, but. The statement gives the reason for why so many people are looking for, especially political representatives. Uh, you know, in Allah Alayanzi'u, the Sultan, Malayanzi'u, the Quran. Do you know who's the companion? Yeah. So the translation is that the Sultanate can have an effect which the Quran itself does not have, cannot have that much of an effect towards some Muslim individuals. And that was said by one of the companions, I believe. Probably uh, companion Ali, mm -hmm. I heard it. So, but I don't think, um, you know, a political leader can have the definition of a sultan nowadays. That's probably restricted to a khalifa. Particularly in a secular society which yes. has no Islamic allegiance at all. So, okay. Um, there was this one thing I just wanted to just slightly changing tack here, just to clarify one point about Islamic teaching on, say, homosexuality. And this point shouldn't need to be made, but I, I still think there are some Muslims who don't perhaps understand this, and, and others who are not Muslim probably don't understand this. That um, in terms of the Sharia, the Islamic law, if you like, um, feelings, how one feels naturally, are of no consequence. Yeah, it, it's not a it's not a moral issue particularly. It's not certainly not a criminal issue. Uh, the Sharia, uh, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, Shape, but the the Sharia is concerned with actions, behaviours, uh, done in certain contexts, and that's when the Sharia takes is, is activated, if you like. So, merely having what's called same-sex attraction, for example, 
is not a moral issue. It's something that arises naturally within certain individuals. Uh, but actions, of course, behaviour resulting from or as a consequence of acting on those feelings is a moral issue and can be a sin, of course, and even a crime if, if these acts are committed in public and there are witnesses and so on and so forth. So uh, Islam has a quite a nuanced position on this, on the public and the private realm as well. It, it's not um, a totalitarian ideology. It's one that has a moral position, uh, but focusing on behaviours. Uh, and, and also, if one, although all same-sex actions are sinful in Islam by ijma consensus, and it's there in the Quran and Sunnah, if, if actions are done in private, away from the public domain, that they are between that individual and God, and it's not the position of an Islamic society to invasively intrude and look behind the curtains and, and, and you know, actively seek out the sinner. That's not how it works, classically, in Sunni Islam. Um, so there is this separation of the private and public, although th these acts are always sinful, of course. W would that be fairly... I would add that if someone does have the inclination, and in a society that's encouraging a person to celebrate that and act on it and live your authentic life, they still, for the sake of Allah, you know, don't act on that. I, w I would say that there's, inshallah, a high positive result of that. And that person could attain very high levels of piety mm -hmm. because they're really going against a society that says, act on it, this is who you are. And they're saying, no, I submit to Allah mm -hmm. and I'm not going to act on it. So I think even more than neutral, we should see this person as inshallah having a high status with Allah. Yes, is there a um, personal jihad and, and, and can uh, be rewarded immensely by Allah, inshallah, if, if their behavior is true. So can I just clarify what one point in a different area about um, gender norms uh, and what it means to be men and women in the Qur'an? Um, uh, I, I get the, 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 the impression, having read the Qur'an, that um, our species comes in two genders, male yeah, and Dr. female. Yeah, Dr. Sharif has a good impression yeah. on that in, your, yeah. in that uh, webinar. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So it, 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 we don't have this kind of alphabet, you know, LGBT, in the Quran, our species come in two forms. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and how does that inform these debates? Is this something, how do we communicate that in a way that's not triggering and hateful, in inverted commas? Um, is it kind of a question of passive resistance that we just doggedly maintain the truth about ourselves? I, mean, I, think, I think it's, again, just an honest answer. I want to hear your thoughts that I think it's interesting that something as self-evident as men being men and women being women mm. needs scriptural evidence, mm. you know? Like I said, this, no one would have looked to scripture to just to establish that men are men and women are women mm. a few years ago. Sure. So it's like, like the example I give when I give talks on abuse, right? Sometimes people want to see like, can a scholar really be corrupt? And then they need like some religious text for that. Whereas it should just be kind of understood. Self-evident. Because no one's perfect. Yeah. So like the Quran mentions theft. Does, do the verses on theft establish that there is a such thing in the world as theft? Or, are we spe or is the Quran addressing a reality that people already know to exist mm -hmm. of theft? And then these are the consequences. Mm -hmm. So for gender, I mean, okay, it's talking about Allah as creator. Allah has created man and woman. And Allah is the creator of man and woman. But do we use that to establish that men are men or women are women? Or should we just know that, like people know that? Mm. So what, you're, what saying, you you're saying it's self-evident self, it, self that we are men, men and female. Yeah, but I mean, 20 years ago, we, or even less, like five years ago, would we have looked at these verses to say that mm. men are men and women are women because the Quran tells us? 
Mm. Or did we already know that? Well, we're, in such, we're in such extraordinary, perhaps unprecedented times now, yeah. we almost have to go back to the scriptures to establish what is plainly obvious, you know, to, to everyone five minutes ago. You know? um, and the Quran does obviously speak of men and women. And yeah. it's there in the beginning of the Bible, you know, God created the heavens and the earth and he created male and female. He says, and it says in the New Testament, it says in the Quran, it's all the way through the Abrahamic tradition. But this is about Allah creating, right? Yeah. Allah is the creator of men and women. How Allah creates, does it establish that there are men and there are women. That, that's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm asking. Interesting. So there's a brother over there. Yes. Yeah, sorry, I just wanted to add to that as well as maybe a contemplative question. <coughs> sorry, um, I'm actually a medical doctor in hospitals. Uh, I've got a friend whose wife is a teacher. Um, she was just saying that she was finding it a bit difficult because some of the children, she's not allowed to dress them as he or she, it has to be they or their. Mm. Um, well, it's really interesting. We, I and all the doctors I know so far working in the NHS, we haven't really encountered this problem as in a she, and they're either male or female, on the records anyway. And I was just thinking, I mean, I don't know how they're going to proceed from here in terms of medically, because uh, there's certain diseases that are more like, you know, a biological male and a biological female. So, I mean, are they going to keep them as original biological males or females only known to doctors and to be hmm. referred to as something? How are they going to proceed that? Because we haven't actually, we haven't encountered having to call them here. Yeah. I mean, we can say preferred to be called, but on the medical records, it's either originally male or female because it relates to biology. Yeah. So, I don't know. Just and, and of course, it's usually women that get pregnant, of course, yeah. and they get, go to hospital. It's, it's, uh, that, yeah, that's exactly. not likely to change by simply saying, oh, I'm a man now, therefore yeah, exactly. I'm not going to get pregnant. And I think one, yeah. one shape, interestingly, you know, he said Islamically defined a woman as having a womb. It's not necessarily having mm. you know, breasts or that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Organs. Yeah, that reproductive because capacity you is really unique too. So the brother behind? Sorry. Yeah, it's very relevant because my brother said I'm a doctor as well. And recently, as you know, National Health Service... Do you want to take the microphone, which I'm not sure we're going to... Could you pass that down to the doctor? Uh, recently, uh, it's, I think it's literally two weeks ago, when National Health Service in the UK dropped uh, the word women from description of ovarian cancer. Really? Uh, and obviously there were... Obviously there was a little bit of uproar from people saying, I think it's going a bit too far. Because um, a transgender or person who is not born as a woman cannot have ovaries. So dropping word women just does not make sense at yeah, all. And I think it's by definition what, what it's you just said, woman. that um, if Islamic scholars have defined having womb and ovaries, which is the reproductive capacity, I think it's a beautiful definition. Mm. Because mm. no amount of changing somebody designating themselves as a male or a female or changing the sex organs, Nobody's creating wombs and ovaries in them. Mm. So well, that's been made by Allah. There's still other the genetics that you can't change. Yeah. So you will not be able to change that. No. But a lot of them are specific more towards man and woman. So a doctor would need to know always. So, so why in a medical context is the obvious designation of a woman as a woman here being dropped? What's the reasoning behind that? Because it clearly doesn't accord with any realities. It seems to be an ideological... Sorry, I don't know. I, I, I read the news about it and all that. Right. I didn't go into depth of what was the reasoning behind National Health Service. But I think it mm. was motivated by pressures. Right. Of, as you know, uh, as you know yourself in UK, he and she is becoming more common now. You know, people want to identify and they want the, the right pronouns. Mm. This is how I want to be called and all that. It's it's gaining movement under the various pressures. 
Mm. Um, but there is certainly no, you know, it's, it's very silly in terms of biology because no person who has been, even if, they, if somebody has changed gender uh, and become a male or somebody wants to, they cannot develop an ovarian cancer. Mm, mm. Ovary is an organ which is present naturally created by God in a female. Mm. And that's where it resides, and that's what will happen. And that'll that, never that change. That cannot be changed. <laughs> Despite changing pronouns. Yeah, yeah. Cool. That's, that's, that's very interesting. Thank you. Did anyone else want to. Um, yeah, sorry, the brother at the back. Yeah, Professor, we could say, say that to the, the, the very end. There's a huge question. Um, so the brother, right at the back there. I will beg your pardon, sister, sorry. Uh, uh, something that I've seen come up and that I haven't quite understood is that uh, people who, you know, they, wanna, uh, they, try to, they seem to try to separate between uh, biology and, um, you know, gender fluidity. So mm. they often make a distinction between sex and gender. Mm. Um, is that a false dichotomy? And if it is, how do we like, explain that to people? Gosh, that's a huge, huge question. Well, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not an expert, I'm not a, I'm not a scholar. I, I, I tend to think that a lot of good work um, in, in talking about these issues, done people like, like Jordan Peterson on, online, he's the Canadian uh, professor of clinical psychology. Um, and there's another guy, um, is it Matt Walsh, um, who, uh, the big YouTube uh, star now, he, he went around asking people, what, you know, what is a woman? And he's very skilled at uh, unpicking these latest kind of ideological moves. Um, but I, I, I'm not, I can't comment on that. I'm not, I'm not an expert. The relationship between gender and, and, uh, and sex, uh, I tend to think the more traditional understanding is the one that Islam obviously, I think Islam is a, is a traditional faith when it comes to gender, to gender roles. Um, so fundamentally, the expression may be cultural, but the re reality, the essence of gender is created as part of our our fitra, our DNA. So, um, so the sister. Um, um, I was just going to say that um, I'm from a medical background as well, I'm a GP, and mm. we are getting ready for, there's going to be an influx, I think, in the future, where it's starting from reception now, where you know young kids are being told to choose what they want to be, boy or girl, whatever. And um, children are malleable, as we know. Um, mm. If you suggest something, they'll go with it. Um, and uh, and also we've seen a lot of teenage girls as well. Um, it never used to be the case. It used to be that a lot of transgender people were males wanting to transition into female women, basically. Now we're seeing it the other way around, which is on the rise at the moment, teenage girls wanting to become men. Gosh. Um, and they're being offered key blockers mm. and other medication um, that can virtually render them sterile. Uh, if they change their mind, they can't have children afterwards. So 
and um, I'm just wondering what what would your sort of like advice be on how to talk to young children, teenagers? Uh, what would your advice be on that? I, I, I'm not in a position to, to give advice, particularly oh, this is a medical question and you, obviously people in your profession, Muslim doctors, are the, the right people to give leadership on this and offer um, you know, expertise on this. Um, and but because it's so politicised now, isn't it? It's, there's so much, so, so much stigma um, around this. Uh, is it possible even to have an, um, an open conversation, um, you, you think, sisters? Sisters, you're shaking your head, unfortunately. Uh, sister's a, a GP. Uh, unless you want to lose your job. I mean, on that point about losing a job, I, I, I had the privilege of interviewing a very senior Muslim scholar from Britain. I'm not going to say who it is. Um, and he said to me before we recorded that he was not able, he would not be speaking on these kinds of issues on camera because he would lose his job. And he's a tenured professor at a very distinguished university. So that's the climate we live in. You, you as a GP saying you'd lose your job by talking about it. He is a very distinguished academic, uh, felt he would lose his job. And he has a, a family. He said, I have a family, I have a house. And, and how can we, you know, we're talking about leadership, the lack of leadership. And yet these people are, their lives are on the line. And yet we expect them to speak out. So that's another factor. And I think this right here is something we should tap into. The fear of losing a job for even doing what's in the medical best interest of people, mm. right? Puberty blockers, like the sisters mentioned. I think a really good book to read is Abigail Schreider's Irreversible Damage. Um, she gets into the horrors of puberty blockers, the regret, how women become sterile from it. Mm. Um, now again, just this, this is culture of fear of losing a job for stating a view. Doesn't that expose the lie of LGBT being a minority, like mm. other minorities, yeah, absolutely. and not wanting anything special? I mean, do Muslims, are we, are Christians ever afraid or anybody atheist ever afraid of stating something against a religion that they'd lose their job, mm. that they don't believe in this? You know, I mean, people should have a freedom of expression. And how many corporations are behind LGBT? You get rainbow Oreos in Pride Month. I mean, really? they get a month. They call, it's not Pride Month, it's June, but they call it that, right? Gosh. You have different corporations capitulating to this entire movement and to show that they're on the right side of things, you know? And if not, they're even, there's even, they're treated with suspicion as if what's propagated is that they hate LGBT if they don't capitulate, you know? So we should be very, like, aware of this. And this is where I think we see, again, like the mistake that was made by some Muslim leaders to just ignore it, it'll go away, or it's not our concern. Yeah. Because now when you get to the level of puberty blockers and doctors are afraid to speak about what's in the medical interest of people, you see clearly that this is not a small thing. Yes, so can you... I don't, I don't want to make it very UK specific, but of course, um, you know, the United Kingdom is a country which is very significant. It's, it's probably the origin of the whole Anglo-Sophia which at the moment kind of rules the world, if you take it in that way, uh, that uh, Temistock Square is the main clinic, as you guys know, mm. um, which was uh, in UK established as gender dysphoria clinic, and which was converting children, and even younger children were being taken in, and that's been closed recently, and they've decided to go, um, uh, because um, a case was brought about by a young person who had been converted, um, uh, who had changed gender 
and they felt that they had been damaged. And, and there was a lot of support uh, when they came out. Um, there were other people who came out as well, young people who said that they were damaged and they were given uh, wrong advice. And as Sister quite rightly said, children are very malleable. Um, but in a broader perspective, without looking at it um, you know, in, a, in a conspiratorial manner, uh, but do you not think that um, you know suddenly, uh, if we step back about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, when uh, a lot of people may not know it, of course, you know, people do not know it. When there was Soviet Union and there was a Russian Empire and there was a um, there was a division between the liberal world and atheistic. Atheism was the norm in communism, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously, you know, making political comments. Uh, you know, Mujahideen were being fought as people of God who were fighting Soviet Union. And then that collapsed, and the whole thing, atheism, has now suddenly become the dominant kind of ideology on the on the Western liberal side. Mm. And then that's been now being taken over by these movements, like Brother Dhanis said, that it's oppressive that you cannot speak. I mean, yes, losing the job, but I would be upset that the regulator like General Medical Council will probably strike you off or suspend you mm -hmm. if you go against the political norms as they did with the doctors who disagreed with COVID, for example. They were not allowed to air their views right. and there were people who were suspended, so it's likely to happen. Um, and as you rightly said, a lot of um, uh, these uh, corporations are coming to the pressure which has been exerted by a movement. So they're no longer a minority, they're actually a dominant majority view now. Mm -hmm. And the danger for Muslims and Muslim countries is because they hold the geopolitical power and the financial power, they're trying to force their agendas on relatively less developed and weaker Muslim countries and Muslim societies. Mm. No, this is very true. And indeed, uh, you know, American foreign policy is quite, the State Department has openly said that they want to change the Muslim world and make it conform to the America's liberal values. Is the latest kind of paradigm where uh, uh, the West is imposing its worldview on the Muslim world. It used to be other issues, uh, but now it's this particular um, agenda. And I sometimes ask myself, what next? Because I mean, as, if, as if this isn't enough, you know, because there's always a constant shift in the in the, the social mores and the the lifestyles in the West. It's never kind of static. But I don't think we've reached the end point. I mean, the, the trajectory is always there. So what are we looking at next? I mean, to be provocative, we're looking at the promotion of incest, which is actually beginning, by the way, this is not entirely hypothetical, as a an accepted norm. Are we looking at the promotion of paedophilia? Uh, you know, sex, man boy, man boy uh, you know, uh, relations uh, with children. Now, th these may seem outrageous ideas, but just 10 years ago, the idea of gay marriage was unthinkable. You, look, you can see uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton talking about gay marriage in the early, in the early part of this century, and they were completely against it. Of course, oh no, no, it's not, it's not right, because nothing had. And then the culture changed. Now, then they were all for it. Um, um, so I think e even. Um, the previous president, um, uh, I forget his name now, the Republican president, um, supported gay marriage as well. So um, what is next? And I think, it, it, I think it's likely to be incest, paedophilia. There are darker areas even than that with other species. <laughs> you know, I have that mentioning it. It's a slippery slope because there's no breaks. That because we lack a transcendent reference point in the West, we have abandoned God, literally. We, we ignore God in our discourse. And we're not rooted in, in objective revelation and the creator's intention for our lives. And in another uh, you know, twist, 
when people want to talk against God and they always say, oh, we don't want theologians telling us, um, you know, we don't want to do this or don't want to do that. We don't want anybody laying down the rules for us. It's a very silly notion because the simplest example is you stop at a traffic light. It's a red light. Mm. It's been designed by a human being and we then follow the laws uh, which are made by parliamentarians in, in most countries which who are politicians who, as you rightly said, are influenced by the intelligentsia which is in, who are themselves either you know, being paid to be on a certain side or being oppressed to be on a certain side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, religion in general, the religious law is very concerned with sexual actions. You know, because sexual pleasure is the most explicitly tangible experience of sin, if it's done in a sinful way, along with murder. You're, these are actions you enter with your full body. So Islamic law is very concerned with sexual ethics all religions really. Mm. And this movement is saying that a person doesn't even know who they actually are until they've experienced the entire gambit of sexual sins. And you form an identity around sexual sins. So we shouldn't see it as a small or insignificant thing that Islam has rulings on sexual actions. Again, the most explicitly tangible experience a person can have of sin is a sexual sin. Mm, very interesting. Um, Yes, brother. Do you want to pass the microphone back, actually? I'm a bit concerned that we're not picking up everyone's voices. Um, I'd like you to uh, go back to the point you were talking about, where we separate between the emotion and the act. So, of course, the, the actual punishment, like all the, uh, the punishment in Islam would be on the act, of course. Yeah. But in, in our discourse, when we say emotions are fine, I understand it in a, like a pastoral context or a context where you're in like therapy or something. Someone's going through therapy, you tell them that it's not a sin in itself to feel this, but you've got to act on that. You've got to fight not acting upon this. Mm. But things like um, homosexuality and pedophilia and all these things, shouldn't there be like a broad stigmatization? There should be a broad stigmatization of it. And us discussing that, oh, it's fine to feel this way. In a way, we're kind of decreasing from the stigmatization of it. Because, um, like, if it's all right to feel that way, then normally it wouldn't be so bad to express your feelings. And expression is the first, first uh, step towards normalization of, mm. of these kind of ideas. So, like, in the in our discourse, shouldn't there be like a more of an emphasis on just talking about how bad it is? And because uh, in the Quran as well. When Allah subhanahu wa talks about, uh, he, he advises the mothers of believers that they should lower their voices and they shouldn't speak in an alluring way. He mentions so that those who have an illness in their hearts don't uh, become attractive. So like the, the way the Quran, uh, it, it views these kind of feelings as well, it views it as an illness. So, yeah, so I was trying to, like, I was trying to um, point out to the, to the fact that Maybe we should just only focus on that aspect rather than talking this one. Yeah, I would say that if we preserve without compromise how bad acting on it is and the sinful nature of it rather than how much we don't hate anyone, then you preserve the haya, the shame of acting upon that sin and the feelings they are going to exist in people 
And the more you deny that, the more Muslims will look outside, I think. You know, whatever the, the reasons may be for the growing even feelings and those inclinations. And Allahu Alam, this is just my take. You might have a better take on this. Um, and I think the real point, therefore, has to be focusing on how sinful it is without any sort of compromise. Refutations like Mubin Vaid has written of, I believe, Scott, Scott Krugel, mm, yes. where, where he, where he and, and to not fall into like Om Lut was destroyed because they were raping rather than homosexuality. You know, so really preserving how this is a cosmological offense, you know, it, it's really serious. And, and not to belittle the action in any way. And, and not closing the door of Toba, of course. But another thing we have to realize, and, for, and personally, I don't think we should even make fun of people at all who've gone through transitions or not, because those people can accept Islam. Maybe they were Muslim and they're making Toba now. Where are they now? We don't reject anybody, you know? So, on, theologically, on theological grounds, we do. But if someone's made a mistake, if someone's gone through a transition, because look, this is a mania that's sweeping the nation, sweeping the world, right? So people are going to fall victim, then they're going to come to their senses. Now what do we do with Now what do we do? We can't treat them any less. So that's why I point people to Wahid Jensen, who has a, a podcast who really helps Muslims and is a resource for Muslims who have these attractions and want to stay loyal to their faith tradition. So I think having outlets that are uncompromising in terms of action, uncompromising in terms of tafsir or any part of the religion, but they deal with the reality that people do have these inclinations, I think that's the best way to go. Hmm. I think the brother makes a very good point. Thank you for making that clarification. I do also want to stress that um, in that the video uh, on blogging theology, Islam and LGBTQ, at the end there are um, uh, Professor Tulgi mentions um, support groups for supporting the faithful struggler, the, the Muslim struggler, who and there are some very good resources and um, support groups available uh, online and in the real world uh, for people who are uh, struggling with this issue. It's not just an intellectual problem, it's an existential problem for some people. Um, and there's some very good resources run by responsible people, in, in one case by a medical doctor who himself uh, struggles with same-sex attraction. So there are resources and support available to people who, uh, who are struggling with this as, as Muslims. So. Yeah, can I, can you pass that down to the sister at the end this time? Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, just to go back to um, Shin Dennis's point about um, the book written by Abigail Schreiner, is it? Yeah, I think I watched some of her interviews. I mean, one of the striking things that she mentions in that book, which was really startling, was that the number of people that want to go through transitions has skyrocketed. And um, one of the reasons she gives for that is because young teenagers, what have you, kids, want to have the sense of belonging rather than the wanting to change transition or into, they just feel like being in this group would make them inclusive and find some sense of identity and belonging. So what I was going to say is that just wanted to plead really to the Muslim community in the UK to open the doors up to the community and allow women in and allow um, children in, teenagers in, and build up a community to allow them to have a sense of belonging. And I think that's, that is kind of like one step towards perhaps reducing this. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, what, what would you say about that? Okay. <laughs>
Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll perhaps respond to that um, towards the end. Thank you. Was it someone else? Um, can we have, yeah, pass the microphone over. Thank you. Thank you. In almost all Western countries, the political uh, spectrum is divided into left-wing progressive parties and right-wing uh, conservative <coughs> parties. And those left-wing parties are almost exclusively propagating for LGBT and some free sexual morality. And you also see almost exclusively in all countries that Muslims are allying with those left-wing parties. And would it be time for Muslims to align with the right-wing parties who are explicitly mm. against uh, LGBT or sexual amorality, also purity blockers? Uh, would it be time to align with them? Or wouldn't that be wise either for other reasons? This is a, a really, really good point, I think. and um, I. I it has often struck me as a little odd that the uh, Muslim activists in the States and in Britain, uh, I think it may be true in mainland Europe as well, seem to be firmly uh, in alliance with the political left. Um, and why is this? Well, obviously the left is protective of, of Muslims politically and, and are against Islamophobia. But it, it, in my view, it comes at a huge price. And the price is that we kind of go silent on these other issues that, that uh, the left propagates. And the, but the right, the political right, the Republicans in the States, the Conservative Party in Britain and so on, um, uh, many of them still maintain traditional values. I mean, I, I saw, I noted Trump, uh, Donald Trump, was it yesterday or the day before giving a speech? And apparently he's a hot favorite to win the Republican nomination for the presidency next time round. Um, and he was pressing all the, the anti-woke buttons with the Republicans. You know, he's against this wokeism, he's against all these issues we're concerned about. He's, he's actively canvassing on and g gathering support from American Republicans and conservatives. So can Muslims be in alliance with Donald Trump, considering what he's done, you know, with, on the other issues we know about? It's, it's really, because Islam isn't left, in my view, Islam isn't left or right. It isn't on this kind of European political spectrum, which came from the French Revolution, actually. This is where the, the words left and right came from. Who sat to the, the right of the speaker, who sat to the left of the speaker after the French Revolution. Um, Islam isn't political like that. It's not right or left. So I, but, but I think there are, I, I think there needs to be more creative thinking. I'm thinking of, of the, the wonderful, for me, the wonderful um, English philosopher, Sir Roger Scruton, who died just a year or so ago. And he was a traditional conservative philosopher. I mean, a real conservative traditional philosopher. And he had been quite Islamophobic historically uh, in, the, in the years. But in recent times, his thought had matured and become more nuanced. And he had a wonderful dialogue at Zaytuna College with Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, which you can see online talking about areas of commonality between Islam and the traditional conservative philosophical worldview. And Scruton was no Muslim. I mean, he was a, a, a traditional Christian. And I, I, th I saw their great promise uh, for a more creative en engagement with the political right or traditional thinking am amongst Muslims. But it comes with baggage, and the right is associated often with racism and anti-Islamophobic uh, Islamophobic rhetoric. So it, it seems we can't win, but both sides have problems. But I think there needs to be, more, in my view, for what it's worth, I think there needs to be more creative engagement with the traditional right, because there are sane voices within it, in my view, like Roger Scruton, amongst a whole bunch of loonies as well, you know. So we, we've got to forge alliances with some people, because I think there is an overlap with Islamic values and conservative values in the West, as well as left-wing values and Islamic values as well. You know, concerned with justice, justice for the poor and the oppressed is very Islamic, uh, and, and that 
comes from the left traditionally. So I think we need to perhaps be more creative in our political engagements. Uh, that's just my view. This reminds me actually that um, one reason when I had mentioned that a lot of the conservative Christians have began to speak out actually had to do with, as far as I know, that during the COVID lockdowns, parents were for the first time able to see what their children were learning in school. Really? Yeah, and then through Zoom, and that's <laughs> when there was, there was awareness before, but there was a greater exposure to how much this LGBT doctrine, how much gender uh, confusion is happening at the level of even elementary schools. So maybe if we could talk about now what's going on in the schools and the indoctrination forced upon children. Yeah. That'd be, that's, I think, an important topic. Yeah, no, I, I, have, I, have, I have virtually no knowledge of that, but it's clear from the national news that there is a, a, an absolute ideological campaign in British schools, presumably in the States as well, to roll out this ideology from the earliest ages of children, you know, one or two years old. It's not like teenagers. It's catch them when they're young, really, um, really early on. So this is... I mean, historically, this reminds me, uh, perhaps bizarrely, of the Cultural Revolution in Mao Zedong in, in communist China in the 60s and 70s, where you had this total top-down social revolution and you had the counter-revolutionaries and the, you know, the, the enemies, the blasphemers. Um, and you get the same kind of dynamic here, here at work now, is this totalitarian ideology at, that aims even at the youngest children to uh, brainwash them um, from the beginning. It's extraordinary. Absolutely. So you have people, and I think this, we should spend some time on this, it's a, quite important, is that even at, at the age of five, you have teachers asking children, what's your gender? Okay, you're a girl, do you feel like a girl or do you feel like a boy? And in some cases, they'll give a name, they'll give a girl a boy name, and they keep that boy name secret from the parents. So these are public schools now and teachers are confusing children about their gender, giving them secret names, and saying, don't tell your parents. This undermines parental authority, of course. Uh, undermines anyway, parental authority. There, sorry, <laughs> no. No, no, you, I'll have this. Undermines <laughs> parental authority. Um, this is a type of, like, it reminds me a lot of cult recruitment, actually. Yes. And just that initial confusion, because, you know, children, they play sometimes, they tend to be boys, sometimes girls, but that's just part of being a kid, like how some kids play, you know? But then they'll affirm that and lead them down. They lead them down a path, and then if the and then sometimes in some cases they've said, you know, your child is now a girl, and if you don't affirm that, you can't pick uh, her up, you know. And then if they don't call them by the preferred new name that the teachers have given them, they're seen as being hateful as well. So this stuff is very serious, and I think TikTok also has kind of exposed what a lot of teachers are doing. Um, you have gay teachers telling their students that I have, you know, this partner, I'm gay, this is what it means to be gay, and, and they're exposing and sexualizing children at the earliest ages. I, I mean, they're, 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 I was just reading in the Times, the Times newspaper is a British newspaper, an establishment paper, you're reading it online, and I think two or three days ago there was a news item about, um, it's a big thing in Britain and in the States, I think, where you get drag queens, inverted commas, uh, uh, teaching stories to kids. So you get these guys dressed up as outrageous women, basically. I mean, imagine if you're a feminist seeing this, by the way, these, these extraordinary um, extreme uh, portrayals of womanhood, you know, with lots of lipstick and big wigs, as if this is kind of what a normal woman's like. Uh, and teaching it anyway. So the, the, the part of the news article was that um, some parents have pushed back against this activity. And the, the article took the side of the drag queen. That's what they call themselves, drag queens. 
saying, oh, I, I, I really felt threatened by these parents who, who were threatening me, you know, because I'm doing this. And the Times was completely accepting that, that the drag queen's narrative on this. And there was no, nothing from the parents who, who were obviously very concerned about the well-being of their children being influenced by this, this phenomenon. Um, and, you know, this is the establishment newspaper in Britain just automatically taking the side of drag queens teaching kids uh, in schools. I mean, it's, it's, for me, it's unbelievable. If someone had told me this would be the case five years ago, I wouldn't have believed them. In the worst kind of dystopian right. vision, I wouldn't have thought this would happen, you know. But it is happening. And I come back to this kind of dark point. In five years' time, are we going to be preaching the virtues of incest, the virtues of men having sex with children, the virtues of interspecies sex, also known as bestiality. You know, I love my dog. Now, I know this sounds horrible, <laughs> and I, I don't mean to, you know, I'm giving you the idea I shouldn't say that, but I'm serious, you know. This is, in my view, this is something that could well happen, you know? I love my dog, I love my chihuahua, I love my, okay, you know, the next step is, why can't we get married? I, I know it sounds crazy, but what's so crazy about that idea, given all the other crazy things that happened five minutes ago? So I think the roller coaster here is not ended. I think we're looking at a continued push to more, more extreme, deviant um, manifestations of behavior and the you know, official endorsement of this and the insistence that Muslims must approve of it or be evil or haters. Yeah, and I think, again, just to sorry, bring it back to yeah. schools, why it's so important is that a lot of the state, the changes politically, in my understanding, have to do with school curriculum. And like in Florida, the, there's been a serious limitation as well of how much of this could be taught. Because schools were the breeding ground of a lot of this, right? And in, in terms of drag queen, I think also, this is where Muslims, we have to go beyond. It's like to the brother's point, it's not just the action. But when we see something as flagrant and explicit as drag queens reading to five-year-olds, we can't just tell them that this is a sin. We should preserve that that fear, that's, that reaction of just like a disgust of that. Because somebody who's actively propagating is different than someone who's struggling with a sin. Mm. So somebody who's advising someone and dressing and trying to normalize uh, these type of appearances, it's okay if the children should be afraid of that like they would be of a jinn, you know? This is not something we should desensitize them to. And don't be afraid of being called hateful for that because they're actively pushing to take away a fitra response. As parents, and people concerned for children, our job is to preserve fitra and to nurture that. Mm -hmm. um, so this is there. Gosh. Yes, can you, sorry, could you kindly pass that down? She's just oh, oh, school, oh, sorry. Sorry, I didn't. I think two examples you've given are really interesting. Um, the one about the pronouns and the one about the drag queens because they're very explicit. Mm. But um, last year I was homeschooling my nieces during lockdown and my niece who was four, she got sent home a book. And in that book, it was all about celebrating diversity. So every page had two children and they were different in some way. So, you know, one child, you know, one child is white, one child is black, but we're friends. The second page, I live in a house with a lovely garden, but I live in a flat or an apartment, but we're friends. So they had all these, I have brown hair, I have blonde hair, but we're friends. Towards the end of the page, you know, the book, I have a mum and dad, and I have two dads, but we're friends. So I think um, <coughs> what you're talking about is the very, very explicit stuff that's happening that we would all recognise as problematic. 
but I think we also need to understand that there is very insidious stuff being slipped in very innocuous, innocuously yeah. in all sorts of areas of mm. the curriculum. And she was four. She didn't need to be exposed to that stuff. There's no need for that at that age of any kind of diversity training. Children don't need diversity training. No. Yeah, children need a very costly diet. Even, even in California, somebody I know, um, their child was in, a, was in a school. And again, because COVID allowed a lot of parents to see what's being taught. And that's why I really think schools are the most important area to focus on. And they had a character explaining something in science, and she introduces herself as saying, Oh, by the way, I'm a trans person. Like, you know? just very subtly slipping these things in to normalize it. So it doesn't even have to be part of proper LGBT training or proper LGBT L diversity stuff. They just add it in wherever they can. And this is what I mean, like, if we are so scared of just, oh, but we don't hate anyone, but we don't hate any anyone, we, we can't lose the fitrahi uh, response to something as hideous as a drag queen uh, and then reading to children. You know, because that's not an, that's not, that's a, that's an act. Mm. You know, that's over the top and that's done intentionally. And uh, it also strikes me, obviously I can't speak for, for women, but it strikes me as profoundly anti-women. If you look at these, these drag queens, if you see photographs of them, they're, they're, in my personal view, they're kind of hideously exaggerated caricatures of womanhood. You know, we have beautiful women here who are dressed modestly and are naturally attractive. These are men dressed as women with very extreme kind of manifestations of femininity. And th these people are teaching very young children and normalizing that. Uh, and there has been some pushback from some feminist groups, I noticed, some, some lesbian groups as well, who have fought hard over the years to establish the rights of, of women in the West. And now they're seeing it undermined by this, th th these kinds of new phenomena, uh, undermining their own, uh, their own rights. So it's not just Muslims pushing back, it's actually some feminist that, that's discourse. That's what I was saying about Muslims yeah. are not leading the way. They're no, following because that yeah, has made it safer. Yeah, and that, yeah, I think, goes back yeah. to schools and legislation about teaching LGBT in schools. So that's what I meant by when you said Muslims were seeing more leadership pushback. I think they're following the way yeah. of a lot of the conservatives who have seen what's going on in the schools. And, and so I mean, how, how talk about homeschooling, oh, what, what, what's, oh sorry. sorry. Sister, beg your pardon. No, go, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I mean, I also just had a comment like, uh, We'd like to share the microphone, otherwise we're not gonna hear. Um, okay. My brother and I went to the same high school. I you know, kind of, it was like early on before they started all this, like she, her, gay kids were still like keeping it kind of quiet. I was pretty open. I was like, yeah, you know, like people gotta do what they gotta do. I'm not for this, you know, and I remember one of my friends, she came out to me at the end of the school year and she was like, oh, I was so scared to tell you. And I was like, huh, okay, I don't know what to do with this situation. And then a few years later, my brother, his, one of his teachers transitioned. From male hmm. to female in the middle of the school year. And he was like, Yeah, he's married to a woman and he has two kids. And he was like, He, she is now coming to school in skirts and has like long hair. And it's just like, it's all, it's on all levels. You know, mm -hmm. like you have, this is like a really big deal. Like you're just, you're letting a teacher transition openly in front of the students and now causing you know, all levels of confusion. And on top of it, I've seen a lot of people I worked at college with <coughs> are becoming teachers. And because they're getting their degrees in this era of she, her, you know, they, them, which, how do they, them, make sense? It can't be plural, like, that doesn't 
But they learn this, and so now they go to schools and they're teaching kids, hi, I'm known as so-and-so, I'm she, her. What are your pronouns? You don't even know, like, you know, the basics of the grammar yet. I don't know what pronouns are. Um, and just the question is, if it's so, in, it's interwoven in so many things, in politics, in budget politics, in schools, and a lot of people can't afford to keep their kids at home. Yeah. Like, my parents were able to send me to Islamic school, mm -hmm. so I had a foundation. You can't afford to do that. It's really expensive. How do we, as Muslims, combat it? How, like, how do we give people the proper education on Islam? Because I think that's one of the like, fundamental issues, right? Especially with like, immigrant families, there's a mix of culture, there's a mix of the American dream, and so they kind of end up going with the flow. But how do we come together as communities and you don't come together as an ummah to combat this well, perhaps we can come back to the, the invasion about the, the issue of homeschooling and how realistic that is as a, as a way of uh, combating this. Thank you. Uh, Sister, do you want to? Um, I have a similar example. Like, I'm still in school and about two years ago we were taught like how... Sorry, you're in college? Um, no, I just finished like high school. Oh, okay. So we were taught how gay people have sex and there were many like there were many Muslim people in my school and they weren't allowed to like step out. And I just wanna mm -hmm. ask like Is this in the UK or what yeah. right, okay. Mm -hmm. How are you supposed to like deal with it when mm -hmm. it's like like everyone's like submitting to this like logic and like even like I have friends or classmates that are gay and I have friends that it's a girls' school but I, there's this girl in my class who um, changed her name and now she's um, a male, everyone calls her he, him. So but, he's like, but she's still allowed in the women's she's school? She's still in our school. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand that. But anyway. no, I mean, this issue of, of parents and then their bringing up of children and instilling good Islamic values, but also <coughs> homeschooling as well. Is, is that a, po a real possibility so, in the Simon, States? And you would know better, but homeschooling in America, the reason it was taken so seriously is because Christians didn't want the state mm. imposing any beliefs upon them, right? Mm. And. Uh, to be repetitive, I think COVID kind of revived homeschooling for a lot of oh, people. Right. And I spoke to some, actually some Christians who are heading uh, like homeschooling organizations and teaching people how to do homeschooling. Mm. Um, and, and, and I was told, yeah, that when parents were finally able to see what's being taught in schools, mm. it horrified them. Mm. So yeah, homeschooling is not an option for everyone. Islamic schooling is not an option for everybody. Um, I, w there's a quote I really liked. I heard uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf mention once. He said that, you know, in some parts of the Muslim world, you have parents who will, like, kind of deform their children's bodies so they can beg for money. Gosh. And they really hurt, th hurt them so they can <clears throat> earn a livelihood. Mm -hmm. And he said that's analogous to people who send their children to public schools to mm -hmm. be able to earn a, earn a living. Gosh. But they're really hurting their iman. Sheikh Hamza, Sheikh Hamza, it's not an exact quote, but no, that's an extraordinary analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he said, you know, that's kind of how we should view public schools as well. That okay, maybe your child will do well in life, get a good job, but if you're not instilling that Islamic foundation and you just send them to be raised by these values, you're hurting their iman mm, greatly, mm. and you're crippling their their Islamic uh, identity. I know in, in, in France that the, the, where homeschooling was quite possible, the, the government uh, just a, a year or two ago 
uh, clamped down on that because many Muslim parents were <laughs> homeschooling their kids and the government got wind of this and actually stopped it. So that's a kind of aggressive secularist intervention in Muslim education. But hopefully in, well, in America it's so a bit different. So somebody who knows history and knows these different movements, how do you view that? The government intervening and wanting to educate children, not letting families have their own values? Yeah, well, it, it's authoritarianism. It's totalitarianism. We, 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 well, yeah. this, is, this is not new. I mean, what, what really struck me, going back to the issue of the Western tradition here, if you look at what's happened in the West in the last 2,000 years, it goes through these kind of incredible changes in ideology and outlook you know you, I mean Karl Marx was you know wrote his Das Kapital in London and you know the, the fruit of that is still with us in China and North Korea and let alone you know uh, in the Soviet Union we have Nietzsche we have um, the French Revolution it, the, the West can't the West is very unstable that's what I'm trying to say it's very unstable ideologically and philosophically it's not rooted in any transcendent basis at all so it's constantly it seems if you look at this bigger picture of the Western tradition, reinventing itself, having a new identity. Uh, and then, because of its hegemony in the world now, it's insisting the rest of the planet goes along with it. This sense of perhaps insufferable superiority we have in the West. Um, and and it, it's that instability and constant changing of identity, to identity, but you know, historically in the West, um, and not knowing what we're about. The West has profound existential identity crisis. And this has been well, well noted by people like uh, Douglas Murray, the British commentator, British commentator who I mentioned in their previous talk. And, you know, I, I know I've said this before, but it strikes me that Islam is the only uh, public world religion uh, that has not succumbed to, to this constant need to change and have different views and, and impose it on everyone else. It has this balance between the public and the private and stability, and it's, it's rooted in the fitra, of course, it's the natural religion. So ultimately, the, the answer has to be religious to mankind. It's not that you know, we can argue about the, the, the pronouns, we can argue about homeschooling, but ultimately the crisis is one of faith uh, and ma mankind's abandonment of God and seeking its own guidance. But of course, the guidance goes all over the place. It's never stable. It never, and, it, and so th this, I think, is, is the ultimate challenge to mankind is to come back to uh, the creator, who is the only one who can give us the guidance that we need to live good lives, successful lives in this life and in the, in the hereafter. Sorry to sound preachy, but I think ultimately it's a religious question. Let me ask you, and I want to hear this from you, what happened to the American revolutionary spirit that's <laughs> so allergic to tyranny, and we're seeing tyranny, uh, this, these impositions uh, happening in, public, in the public sphere. Why are people just capitulating to it? Well, this is it, bullying now, the bullying culture uh, is now normative. And the, the, the victims are saying we're bullied, but the, it's the, the victims, in heavy inverted commas, who are now doing the bullying. And we, we need to, uh, as, you, as you have done so eloquently, we need to call a spade a spade, or, you know, the story of the emperor's new clothes. You know, this is the, the story of the emperor who proudly walked around with his new clothes. He actually wasn't wearing anything. We need to call this out and say that, you know, if you are liberal, if you believe in tolerance, you believe in human rights, you believe in diversity, be true to that. Actually show tolerance, actually acknowledge diversity of opinion. Um, so the rhetoric and the reality is so at odds with itself. And as you talk about the founding fathers in America, you know the, the, the French Revolutionary, so you know, uh, egality, liberty, fraternity. Egality, liberty is supposed to be a touchstone of, of of this ideology, but it's been destroyed. It has been destroyed. 
in the name of these of the what some people call the alphabet people, you know, LGBT, it was always adding another letter to the uh, the name. So yeah, it, people need to call this out and say this is not you're not living up to the very values that you claim to be living by. And it takes kind of a religious form too, doesn't yeah. it? There's this assumption if you disagree with somebody, you hate them, but that hate mm. then inspires a guilt. Then how do you redeem yourself from that guilt? It's to give unabashed support for that corporation. Mm. For, sorry, for that for the LGBT movement. So corporations, if they're even called into questions, like I said, they have to show extra support. Mm. And if they're not showing all the support, it's like the Muslim countries or other countries, they have to hang pictures of dictators to show <laughs> that they're not opposed. Oh, what's wrong? You don't like this dictator? <laughs> Where's the picture in your store, right? Yeah. You go, I mean, you go um. places, they have pictures in the smallest of stores of a dictator, and if not, their loyalty is called into question. This is what we're seeing with corporations. Mm -hmm. You know, if you disagree, you hate, that puts a guilt in them. You, you redeem yourself by showing full-fledged support. And if you don't, it goes back to being hateful. Are yeah. you hateful? To the yeah. point where if you see Joel Olstein, uh, someone named Rick Warren, I saw who, Rick Warren actually is a preacher. Christian yeah, he's an American preacher. evangelical writer but, but preacher. But he's done stuff to help gay people who've, I think, suffered from AIDS. Mm -hmm. And still, when he talks about how this is just non, a non-negotiable in Christianity, mm -hmm. the question is, are you hateful? Do you hate gay people? Mm -hmm. So they really want to change scripture. They mm -hmm. want to change foundational principles in religion. It's not mm -hmm. good enough that you would say it's a sin, and we shouldn't be fooled by this. Mm -hmm. No, it's a very tough times ahead. I mean, I come back to this point, I think, because we're not in a stable place, culturally, politically, in the West, that this would, in five years' time, we'll be in a different place. There will always be, the revolution continues, what some people call cultural Marxism. In the sense, we, the West won the Cold War over the Soviet Union and Marxism, but it lost the political war. You know, uh, we had military victory over the Soviet Union, which disappeared, and the Eastern Europe and the Warsaw Pact. But the ideology has lived on in the West uh, in some ways and is now actually propagated by corporations, American corporations. It's, it's so bizarre. The, ca the capitalist system continues, of course, but ideologically, we, we've become very culturally Marxist. It's really peculiar, actually. Something that Marx never foresaw when he talks about the bourgeois morality attendant on capitalism. Well, actually, it can be cultural Marxist morality with capitalism, which is a, a very curious hybrid, actually. It's almost, as long as the economics are kept intact, the system, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Um, anyway. So, did you, um, also, did you, like, yeah, can I please, just add that please. we should be very aware of media representation and not let media representation trick us into what reality is. I gave the example in a previous session about the We Spy incident in Southern California. A woman took her daughter to a spa, a man came in undressed completely, full nude, and she complained to the staff that there is a man here exposing himself to my little girl. And she saw male genitalia as a child. Now, if this were any other context, this would be a traumatic experience for the child to be recognized as such. It would be seen as a predatory male figure, but the man identified as a woman. So then what, what is a traumatic experience, rightfully labeled such, what is perverse behavior, rightfully labeled such, is now, it goes lower on that hierarchy of minorities, which again speaks to the lie of equality as minority status. And she's just seen as transphobic and it's not a big deal. So, I mean, what is it? Is that exposure traumatic or not? Is it bad or is it not? In pride parades, you have men in full nude as well and little children watching that. You know, so on the one hand, what, it's a traumatic experience, it's indecent exposure. On the other hand, what's the big deal? So, you know, if the media can make you think something is predatory on one end and just immaturity on the other end, then don't 
fall for these narratives. Al-Islam ya'lu wa la yu'la alayh. Islam is the standard. Islam is what's elevated and other, and, and it's not subordinate to other ideologies. So, uh, uh, Sheikh Danish, um, one of the big controversial uh, issues that's hit the media big time in Britain and America is this whole idea of LGBTQ in sports. Uh, and there's been a huge backlash about that. I mean, what are your, your views on that and what's going on in the States? Yes, I think we'd be, we would have been very remiss to omit sports because mm -hmm. along with the curriculum that in, this, in education, the second issue that I think raised the most awareness and was very pivotal was sports. Right. Because sports, it's very clear. Sports is a meritocracy, mm. right? So it's very clear to see that when men begin calling themselves women and being allowed to participate in women's sports, in girls' sports on that basis, they were shattering records. Mm. And that was just, that clearly displayed how ridiculous gender identity is. Mm. Because you had what's called, I think, the identity, the identity, some bill, identity inclusion bill, some bill that let men playing girls' sports, boys in girls' sports, based on uh, claiming to be women. So, so, so just clarify here, the yeah. issue is, so the, the claim is that men on average are uh, bigger, more powerful, stronger than women. Not always, but on, on average. Well, so on average, their leg, they have 80% more leg muscle. They're, sorry, 80% of their leg is, more, is muscular. For women, it's 60%. They have fast twitch fibers that, grow, that women don't have. And even after surgery, this stuff is not lost. So they have 20 times more testosterone as well. So what is testosterone? Steroids is testosterone. The cheating drug is, is testosterone. Na natural yeah. uh, thing. In, yeah. So I mean, if we won't allow a woman to, to dope, to put steroids in her body and compete, why are we letting men on the basis of identity or even post-surgery play in, in girls' sports? And they're shattering records. So in a Connecticut high school, you had 15 uh, medals that were in record or records held previously by 10 different women, 10 different high school girls, okay? This was shattered and those 15 slots were claimed by two men, hmm. claiming to be women. They're taking scholarship opportunities away from girls for college. But, but I mean, I, I hear this, I, I've heard this news as well, but what is the defense from those who advocate this acceptability of this? I mean, because the facts of nature are obvious. So how do they rationalize that in practice? What, what, are there well, any I mean, counter arguments or? <laughs> I mean, you tell me, but well, I, mean, I think, I don't know. as you're saying, this is a purely anti-reality movement. Right. You just have, on the basis of claiming they're women, mm. can't deny somebody's claim, you have to affirm it, and it's very anti-woman. Who's suffering from this? Girls, girls who've trained their whole life, right, in high school and college, their records are being shattered by women, by men, sorry. Women's records are being shattered by men. And you, you told me earlier on about um, an event in the 2020 Olympic Games or something. In, in was it weightlifting or, or yeah, it was weightlifting. It was uh, well, what Olympics, happened then? Yeah, in Olympics, Olympic women's weightlifting, they had a man compete who said he's a woman. Right. Right. And, and he won, of course. Uh, I don't know if he won. I don't, no. I don't know actually right. in okay. that case if he won. But he, they interviewed team members, saying, uh, "This is on YouTube. What are your thoughts about the first transgender?" person on the team right and as you saw they were all silent literally that there was like there was like air silence so there's like nothing radio silence for like one minute right. and they said nothing and that itself spoke volumes to me because it's just that they could have said something and chose not to so why weren't they saying something well they didn't want to say something because of the the stigma attached to speaking right. out and we um, see with the swimmer now leah leah thompson that was that made big news mm. as well because he's shattering women's records in swimming. Mm, mm. And you know, they're giving awards to, to, ma to men as women of the year. Mm. They just start claiming they're women and they win the award of women of the year. This movement, we also have to understand, is very anti-woman. Yeah. 
You know, I mean, I think there was. Explain, a time explain, I say, but what, why is it anti-women? Well, how are men becoming women of the year? Right. Like, why, why are we ignoring women's sports being dominated by men? Mm. They have a clear unfair advantage. The mm. cheating drug is in them naturally. Right, testosterone. Again, yeah. testosterone. If a woman was caught taking testosterone, and it would be less than the natural levels of a man. Mm -hmm. This would never be allowed, mm. but just on the basis of a gender identity, it's ignored. Mm. And and what's important is even uh, in many cases, there doesn't need to be a transition. There doesn't need to be a lowering of testosterone level. Not that that would ever uh, level the playing field, because men have greater lung capacity, bigger hearts, more bone density, right. which gives them obvi obvious uh, physical advantages. Mm. But just at the testosterone level, not everybody requires that. Mm -hmm. So it's purely on the basis of identity in places as well. Mm. And this is where it's just, it's clear absurdity. I think there was a time where maybe Muslims had to justify, you know, Islam is not being anti-woman and the West being pro. Mm. Now it's just so clear <laughs> that this is the most anti-woman movement we're seeing. Yeah, and a lot of feminists obviously up in arms about this uh, and campaigning against this and there's been incredible rows and bitching going on between, between different groups and different people accusing each other of, you know, hate or, or, and so on. It's become quite nasty, quite toxic in the media, I think. Yeah, I mean, if you hear about the Taliban not allowing women's sports, you just mm. point to this and show <laughs> what's happening to women's sports in America. Extraordinary. Gosh. Is there anything else you want to add, add to that before we conclude? Oh, maybe on the verse of, uh, you know, the verses in the Quran that distinguish between male and female. Uh, I'm not sure about this, but I can see perhaps that impacted the view of the khuntha, um, which I don't know exactly what the English term for that would be, um, because either the khuntha is male or female, there's never a third category, right. even with the khuntha mushkila, which I would say read Mubin Vaid's article, I think where the rainbow ends, he talks, he talks about this, where the rainbow ends. So that, that's, that, that article is available online, of course. It's available it? online. Yeah, it's yeah. called Where the Rainbow Ends. It's on Muslim Matters. And again, refer back to uh, Dr. Sharif's uh, webinar yeah. Yeah. as well, um, because they're doing extraordinary stuff in this field. Yeah, there's an extremely good uh, and clear Islamic responses to these issues mm -hmm. now uh, coming through. Uh, and, uh, you know, to really encourage people to, to read those. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much again uh, for your time, inshallah. I, th I think we're going to have to draw this to a close now. I'm conscious that there is another session after this, and I'm, I'm kind of hogging this, and so I apologize for that. Uh, thank you very much to uh, Sheikh Danish for your, your time, your expertise, and your uh, and it's most welcome. Um, I just mentioned again that the Islam and LGBTQ video on blogging theology with Professor uh, Al-Tubki is an excellent resource. If you want to look in the background to this, the, uh, the, uh, the origins, the antecedents of the sexual revolution in today's world, it's all there in wonderful scholarly detail. It's really fascinating and worth watching. So um, thank you very much, everyone, uh, for coming. Thank you, Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.